At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. During the presidential campaign, Donald Trump often talked about an American soldier in Afghanistan who became the longest-held American POW since Vietnam. Trump said he was, quote, a dirty, rotten traitor who should be shot or thrown from a plane. He was talking about Bo Bergdahl. That story is told in a new book. It's called American Cipher. And we'll speak with the co-author, Michael Ames, later in this hour. Also, we'll talk about immigrants with Nation columnist Leila Lalami. Her new novel is The Other Americans. But first, Joe Biden has one thing in common with Donald Trump. That's what Harold Meyerson says. He's executive editor of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold Meyerson, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, Biden is way out in front of the other Democratic candidates. The polls right now say he would beat Trump by six or seven points. And the Emerson poll just out in the last couple of days in the Democratic primary has Biden at 33, Bernie at 25, way ahead of everybody else. Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren tied at 10, Mayor Pete at eight. Nobody else has more than three. You say Biden has something in common with Trump. You you really know how to hurt a guy. What exactly is it? Well, let me let me be clear at the outset. It isn't Trump's fundamental indecency, and it isn't Trump's nativism or or bigotry. Rather, both Biden and Trump uh, appeal to uh, a memory of a of a somewhat mythic America. In, in Trump's case, he goes back to the days when coal and steel were king, when white workers, uh, when, when white men essentially ruled the roost. When you say make America great again, uh, he is referring to that time when pesky women, minorities, young people, God knows who, you know, we're contesting for power as opposed to simply uh, being subordinated, and uh, and that was the end of that. Now, Biden, in his own way, isn't nostalgic for all of the bad things that America has been, but the nostalgia is clearly there. And in talking to uh, his initial campaign rallies, which was to uh, 
mainly white workers in downtown Pittsburgh. He was evoking that time as well and not really grappling with some of the issues we uh, we need to grapple with today. Climate change, perhaps, is emerging as, as the most uh, vulnerable point, although he has yet to actually formally release his position. In, in an odd way, to take the last line of... Uh, the Great Gatsby, both both candidates make an appeal that in some ways is borne back ceaselessly into the past. And, you know, if you look at the polling, if you disaggregate some of the polling on Biden, he, uh, not surprisingly perhaps, polls strongest among more elderly Democrats and weakest among uh, the surging uh, millennial and beneath them, the Gen Z Democrats. And so uh, this, this, this could grow into a real... Uh, a real issue. Of course, the past that Biden would like to return to and indeed talks about returning to is not the white man's America of the 50s. It's sort of the Obama years. Uh, he's very specific. Obama, you know, signed the Paris Climate Agreement. Maybe we should talk about Biden on climate since, as you say, that does seem to be uh, one of the big issues that separates him from the other Democratic leaders. Biden's climate plan, uh, as we are talking, has not yet uh, been made been made public. But there has been a Reuters story, which uh, says it's it's not going to embrace uh, the Green New Deal as such, and it may well embrace what some people view as transition technologies, by which is meant some of the fracking, since natural gas is uh, is is polluting but less polluting than uh, other forms of oil, and uh, as well, uh, nuclear power, which is clean, but has not really been demonstrated to be any safer than it was uh, during the decades when uh, most major nations abandoned it. That suggests to me the potential for a real rift in the Democratic Party, in some ways a generational rift. The other past that Biden wants to return to is the Republicans before Trump, he sees Donald Trump's presidency as what he calls an aberration and says if he was president, he would work with the Republicans to get things done. Of course, we would love to get things done, but I wonder if you agree with him that the Republicans without Trump will be easier to work with. Well, let's check with Supreme Court Justice Merrick Garland and uh, see how uh, how amenable the Republicans before Trump are to letting the Democrats put forth anything, compromise or, or otherwise. Biden entered the Senate in 1973 when there was still a liberal wing, not just even a moderate wing, a liberal wing of the Republican Party with senators like Jacob Javits from New York. No such people exist anymore in the Republican Party, not since at least the mid-1990s when Newt Gingrich became speaker and declared a permanent war on uh, on the Democrats, and that coincided with the founding of Fox News, which created uh, a, you know a safe little cocoon for uh, Republicans who didn't want to hear uh, any disturbing facts. And and so this is this is going to be 25 years. Uh, 25 years this 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 year since uh, the ascent of Newt Gingrich and the creation of Fox News. And I, I fail to see what fantasy land Joe Biden is talking about. Now, there are a few other Democrats running for president who say, yes, we can, we can uh, work with our Republican friends. But Amy Klobuchar seems to be eager to co-sponsor 
bills of no discernible significance uh, so long as they have Republican co-sponsors. But none of this addresses the fact that the Republican Party has become an empirically closed cult that is not going to uh, meet the Democrats halfway, quarterway, eighthway, or sixteenthway on on any on any proposal uh, they make. So I think this is this too is 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 a kind of going back to an era which plainly hasn't existed for at least several decades. Biden's claim is that his middle of the road strategy, as he calls it, can win back white workers who drifted into Trump's camp in in 2016. Of course, Bernie also believes that he can recruit the white workers who were attracted to Trump with his program. We know it well, Medicare for all, a $15 minimum wage, tax the rich, massive infrastructure program, free college tuition. I guess the question is, what do Trump's white workers want? Do they want the program of the 76-year-old white guy who was vice president or the 77-year-old white guy who is a democratic socialist and a senator? We don't we don't entirely know yet. You know, one of the things that Bernie Sanders has going for him is that if you look at labor issues, Biden supported every trade agreement which uh, the industry the white workers in 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 manufacturing and transportation and other fields, their unions all opposed. Biden also supported the Iraqi war, which Bernie opposed. Bernie was opposed to all those trade deals. And and so, you know, if you ask programmatically, philosophically, who's been the better friend of labor, the, uh, certainly it's been Bernie on, on, on the trade issue uh, and other issues. Michelle Goldberg, the New York Times columnist, took up this question uh, just this week on Tuesday. She She pointed out that some evidence that the Democratic Party has not moved left in the same way that the Republican Party has moved right. She says, we may have been mistaken in concluding from Trump's victory that Trump, I'm quoting from her now, in his own horrific way, seemed to expand the possibilities of American politics by proposing a radical critique of centrist Democrats as well as Republicans, and we assumed that the expansion would go in both directions. But she points out there are a lot of Democrats who don't want a revolution or even much of a political fight. They just want things to be the way they were before Trump came along. I wonder if you agree with Michelle Goldberg on that. Partly, not not wholly. First of all, uh, the rise of a younger generation that is clearly aligned with if not social democratic, maybe even democratic socialist politics, even if, and I, even if it doesn't constitute a majority within the Democratic Party, and I don't think it does, nonetheless, that is the future of the Democratic Party, because uh, th- those views are strongly held among voters under 35, whose numbers are going to eclipse uh, the baby boomers uh, in uh, uh, in 2020. So it is not correct to say there hasn't been a movement to the left, it is correct to say it certainly doesn't encompass all of the Democratic Party. And I think it's a little early to believe that uh, Joe Biden's strong start is going to be uh, going to be, you know, with him uh, as as he gets to his middle and uh, later on in uh, in in the campaign. Also, if you want to assess the strength of the left in the Democratic Party, and that's hard to do in, in some ways, but you have to add Elizabeth Warren's support to Bernie Sanders' support, yeah. since in many ways, despite their very different 
self-labeling. Bernie calls himself a socialist. Elizabeth Warren calls herself a capitalist. Both of them are functionally social democrats who support pretty much the same thing. So I, I think we, we could see a primary season that does have some level of ideological polarization within the democratic primaries. We've been talking here as if the working class is the industrial workers in steel and coal and oil and petrochemicals, but there's also the gig economy. There's Uber and Lyft, and there's been some news just this week for the millions of workers who are part of that working class. Yeah, I would file this under suspicious timing event of the month. In, in its first two days on, uh, after its uh, initial public offering of stock, uh, the value of Uber shares declined by just about 20%. The Wall Street Journal ran a headline on, uh, on Tuesday morning, which said, Uber has poisoned an IPO market that was sick anyway. So really bad press for Uber. So who should ride to the rescue of Uber but the Trump appointees on the National Labor Relations Board. In April, it turns out, the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board authored a, a ruling that drivers for Uber and Lyft were independent contractors and they could never form a union uh, as, as a result of this ruling. Well, this ruling was not released publicly until this Tuesday, just as a uh, the news of uh, Uber's dismal uh, performance on the market was uh, being bemoaned in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. kind of makes you wonder why the NLRB released it on, on that day. It's, it's arguably the only thing to be released that could give investors in Uber maybe some hope that uh, all is not lost, albeit the fact that uh, if they felt that, it was due to the fact that workers at Uber essentially are never going to get a raise. So that, that, that's a suspicious event for, for me of, of Trump bureaucrats, at least this week. Harold Meyerson, he writes for the American Prospect at prospect.org, and he's the first person to quote the great Gatsby on our show. Harold, thanks for that and everything else today. I'm waiting for a payback from the Scott Fitzgerald estate. <laughs> During the presidential campaign, Donald Trump often talked about an American soldier in Afghanistan who became the longest-held American POW since Vietnam. Trump said he was, quote, a dirty, rotten traitor, close quote, who should be shot or thrown from a plane. He was talking about Bo Bergdahl, who walked away from his platoons based in eastern Afghanistan. This was in 2009, and he was quickly captured by the Taliban. Eventually, President Obama traded Taliban prisoners to get him back. He was court-martialed, but not sentenced to prison. The whole story tells us a lot about what was wrong with America's longest war. Now the Bo Bergdahl story is told in a new book. It's called American Cipher. And we're joined now by co-author Michael Ames. He's a contributor to Newsweek and Harper's. He's also written for The Atlantic and The Daily Beast. Michael Ames, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, listeners may recall hearing about Bo Bergdahl, not just from Donald Trump, but also from Sarah Koenig on the Serial podcast, which devoted its second season to the story. Our first question, which is the big one, why did Bo Bergdahl walk off his base in Afghanistan? That, is, that was the million-dollar question for, for the five years he was 
he was a prisoner and for uh, after he came home for a while. But fortunately, we do have an explanation. He sat willingly. He volunteered to sit for an interview with the Army investigating general on his case. And he spoke to him for two days, and he went into great detail about his reasons. Now, just because we have that reason, and I can even tell it to you, doesn't mean that it might make that much sense. And a lot of people will remain skeptical because it seems so far-fetched. But I think the, the sort of delusional nature of his reasoning is an insight into, into the fact that Bo didn't belong there in the first place. So tell us, what was this reasoning of his? His reasoning was that he wanted to set off an uh, alert for a missing soldier. He wanted to create this uh, hubbub around him. It was a stunt. He wanted to walk through the night from his base about 18 miles to another forward operating base. Now, soldiers who've been there and will say, well, that's insane because it's uh, Taliban territory and there's no way uh, at that altitude and in that terrain he could do it. But where Bo is from in Idaho, and I used to live in his hometown for many years, the terrain is very similar to where he grew up in Idaho. And he spent a lot of time in the backcountry by himself. And the distance from his base to where he was trying to get to was roughly the distance from his parents' house to where he used to work every day. He wanted to go there to make a statement. He wanted to talk to a general, and he wanted to say everything that he thought was going wrong with the war. Some of his critiques of what he was seeing are legitimate, things about the war that just didn't make sense. Other things he was seeing were not legitimate, such as he thought their battalion commander was going to send his entire platoon on a suicide mission, and there's no real, there was no real um, evidence for that. And how did Bo Bergdahl, walking off his base in Afghanistan in 2009, get to be such a huge thing for the American military in Afghanistan, which then spent years searching for him? It's a great question. In the summer and fall of 2009, the Army turned the missing soldier crisis that Bergdahl kicked off into an opportunity. Of course, they went looking for their soldier that was missing within the first couple of days. It was a very high priority. It was totally legitimate. But after several days, it started to change, and it turned into something else. Intelligence was, was known within days, and certainly with, within less than two weeks, that he had been taken over the border to Pakistan. Even after that was known, soldiers were continually sent on these search missions for him for months afterwards. And those men were lied to about what they were doing. Their commanders were using it as an excuse to run more aggressive raids, and they still haven't really received an honest accounting from the Army about it. And then, how did Bo Bergdahl get to be a political issue for Trump so many years later, in 2016? Well, Trump picked up on it even earlier. Trump was on this right from the moment Bergdahl came home. And that's because Trump was already wired into a political communications campaign that kicked off the day Bergdahl was recovered on the Afghan-Pakistani border, May 31st, 2014, when, hours later, Richard Grinnell, who was a Republican operative who Roger Stone once told me was too uh, shady for him to work with, wow. <laughs> went on Fox News and said that Bergdahl was looking for the Taliban. And he just dropped it casually into the conversation. There was no evidence for it. Uh, 
In fact, it, he was recycling Taliban propaganda, merely in saying it, because it was the Taliban all along who was saying, well, Bergdahl has converted and Bergdahl has now joined us and is, is fighting the holy war. There was no evidence for it. There never has been evidence for it. But Grinnell said it that day, and Trump said it a few days later on Fox News. And it became something that he saw was uh, a good trigger for his audiences, and he stuck with it all the way through the election. Of course, as soon as he became the commander-in-chief, he stopped talking about Bo Bergdahl. Well, who was Bo Bergdahl when he walked off his base in Afghanistan? How come he was in the Army in the first place? He was a guy who didn't belong there in the first place. And that's something, as I said, I lived in his hometown in Haley, Idaho for many years. It's something everyone who knew him knew because he was such a, a, a gentle soul, kind of kind-hearted kid. Just to put it in some context, before joining the Army, he was considering joining Cirque du Soleil and actually traveled to a Cirque du Soleil audition. He also was, was in talks, his parents, um, who were religious Christians, were in talks with their a pastor who was doing missionary work in Uganda. And Bo was also trying to go to Uganda to help the villagers there and teach them self-defense. So he was really a guy, a young kid, looking for a purpose. But he was incredibly physically fit, incredibly strong and smart, but he had some pretty significant social problems and emotional problems. So two years prior to him enlisting to the Army, he washes out of the Coast Guard basic training with um, kind of a panic attack, anxiety breakdown. The Coast Guard issues a form that says he should not be able to serve in the armed services again unless he gets treatment and screening, so on and so forth. The Army simply provided a waiver and took him in anyway. Because in 2008, with a war in Iraq still raging and the Obama administration pivoting to a major troop surge in Afghanistan, the army lowered its standards. And what that typically meant was maybe now they'll take in guys with felony records, or maybe they'll take in men with lower IQ or with other issues. Bergdahl was a fairly unique case. Here's a guy who looks like a soldier, knows his soldier handbook. He had dreamed of being a soldier for years and he knew weapons. And he, from a distance, looked like he looked the part. But when he got in there, he, because of his own unique idiosyncrasies and what was later diagnosed as a personality disorder, really didn't fit in at all and couldn't handle what was going on there. It didn't belong there in the first place because of the likelihood that he would do something as crazy as what he ultimately did. Let's talk for a minute about the recovery effort. Some of the most shocking stuff is about what the soldiers went through who were sent to look for him. Oh, yeah. And they were sent for months on these ridiculous quote-unquote search missions that were no longer search missions. They were anti-Taliban missions under the auspices of a different name, which is we're going to look for Bergdahl, even though he was already over in Pakistan. They were sent to fight the war. And these guys did the job um, as if they were actually looking for Bo, so you could understand why they would be so angry at him. Uh, but one of the things that, that motivated some of my earliest sources to go on the record and talk about this is the fact that those people were lied to. Their families didn't know the full fact. And when some soldiers died on those missions, they believed they died looking for Bergdahl. But this is really an important point. 
The six soldiers who were often cited as killed looking for him, all of them died weeks after the army already had overwhelming intelligence and the rest of the intelligence agencies on the case had already come to the conclusion that Bergdahl was in Pakistan. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible story. Now let's talk about the, the, the trial and the verdict. What do you make of the legal proceedings against him and the very controversial verdict they came up with? Well, the legal proceedings were an incredible waste of resources. There were four times as many Pentagon prosecutors on the government team as there was on the team that prosecuted Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. So it was a politically driven case. It was the tale of Fox News wagging the dog of the Pentagon JAG Corps, which is a crazy dynamic that shouldn't have been allowed to go that far. But for a variety of factors, everything from, from what John McCain said at the time when he was the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and he said that there would be hearings, that there was, not, there was no punishment. And just from the power of the media entertainment system, it led to this incredibly overblown full court-martial that took resources away from the rest of the Army legal system, incredibly. As for the verdict, I don't think it was as controversial for the people who were following the case closely and who were going to all the hearings. He was reduced in rank. He did get a dishonorable discharge, which is equivalent to a felony. He simply was not thrown back in a cage. And I think people who heard what he had been through, who heard how the army used his crisis for its own gain, realized that that that, that was a fair and reasonable verdict. So in the end, what does the story of Bo Bergdahl tell us about what was wrong with America's longest war? I think Bo Bergdahl came to be a crucible of our country in general. Here's a kid who didn't, who didn't belong in this place, fighting for an army that didn't belong in this place. Here's a kid who's broken, fighting for a war that's broken. And here's a kid whose idealism led him to do something completely insane. And I think we are a country whose idealism led us to waste immense resources and treasure in a war that was completely insane. The book is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan. Michael Ames is the co-author. Michael, thanks so much for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me, John. Now it's time to talk about The Other Americans. That's the new novel by Leila Lalami. Her last novel, The Moore's Account, won the American Book Award and was a Pulitzer finalist. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Harper's and The Guardian. And, of course, she's a columnist for The Nation. Leila Lalami, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, America is a country of immigrants, we all say. And the standard immigrant story is... The American dream, immigrant crosses the ocean, works really hard, becomes a success. The story in your new novel is a little more complicated. (laughs) As life tends to be. (laughs) 
So the book begins with the death of a Moroccan immigrant on a desert road in a hit-and-run accident. And we don't know. There's a mystery about who's driving or whether it's an accident or, or something else. And the guy who is killed is a Moroccan immigrant. His name is Dries Gerawi. And he came to the United States in 1981 with his wife following some political trouble he got into in Morocco and... He moves to the desert in the Mojave, starts a business, and the whole idea for him was that he would come to this country with his wife and find safety and opportunity. And the first paragraph of the book is basically this accident where he dies. So the thing that he was searching for, he doesn't find. And then, so the book is told from the perspectives of multiple characters, including his daughter, who's a musician, who returns home at the beginning of the book because of this death, his wife, who's now his widow, his other daughter, the person who runs the business next door, you know, the detective who's investigating the story. But basically, all of these characters have some kind of a connection to him. And the book is told from their perspectives. And the setting is not a big city immigrant neighborhood like East L.A. or the Bronx. Mm -hmm. Instead, you set it in a small town in the Mojave Desert, already we are surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, that sort of is the expectation. I mean, I was born and raised in Rabat, which is the capital of Morocco. And then I lived in London. And after that, I lived in Los Angeles. So I've always thought of myself as a big city person. It's a space that I feel comfortable in, the density, the noise and all of that, and the mix of people. But in writing this book, I had two reasons for setting it in the desert. One was just because I like the desert. <laughs> and I, and yes. And I, you know, a few years ago, we started going out to the Mojave, actually. And I just really fell in love with the landscape and with the silence and the peace and the quiet and the sort of the fauna and the flora. And I just, I also like the fact that it's the landscape that requires your attention. It's not something that reveals itself if you're kind of a careless onlooker. It requires you to pay attention in order to notice the life that is happening there. And the second reason is because it starts with this hit and run, I thought it would be much more interesting to set it in a small town where the people who lost this man, the, his family members, might at some point come across the perpetrator of this crime. I guess we have to talk about Donald Trump and <laughs> the politics of immigration. Of course, he's made a big point about not wanting refugees from those whole countries. He prefers blonde and blue-eyed immigrants from Norway, he said. In your book, that issue, the politics of immigration, is often in the background and certainly in our minds as readers. Yeah, I, I was wondering how long it was going to take us to <laughs> before we got to Trump. You know, I have a theory that no conversation between any people in this country can last for long without Donald Trump coming well, we, up. <laughs> we went four minutes. Yes, that's that. So it is a question that has come up as I've been promoting this book. But I started working on this book in 2014, long before Trump announced, and frankly, but long before I even knew of his prominence. I mean, I honestly knew nothing about the man other than he was a real estate billionaire and that he had a TV show that I'd never watched. So I didn't really know anything about him. And I was working on this story about this immigrant. I've had a long-standing interest in the subject, also because I'm an immigrant myself, and I wanted to write a story about that sort of centers on this immigrant. The book basically explores immigration from multiple different perspectives. There's 
the couple who came here in 1981. But there's also one daughter who was brought here as a toddler and then one daughter who was born here. And it basically goes into their different experiences of immigration. One, even though she's born here, she still has the effects of that immigration are still felt upon her. And then there's another character who is an undocumented immigrant. So that's a completely different situation for him and, and sort of the choices that he faces. Let's talk about the cop a little bit. This is not just an immigrant novel. It's also a detective story, a mystery. Mm -hmm. And mysteries are a well-established genre <laughs> with their own you know, requirements and traditions. It's kind of a bold thing yeah. to step <laughs> across the line yes. into that territory. How hard was it for you to write about the cops and the detectives? Did you study Michael Connolly's <laughs> books? Uh, did you... Do, I don't know, ride-alongs with cops in the desert? We have a saying in Morocco that goes something like this. He who has a tongue will never be lost, which the <laughs> idea being that as long as you ask questions, you will get answers. So I knew, you know, in working on this story, once I wanted to include an element of mystery that I had to basically do my homework. Fortunately, I'd, I'd grown up when I was young, like when I was in my teens, that's all I read was mysteries. So I actually was pretty well read from that, but I hadn't picked up a mystery in quite some time. So I wrote my friend Todd Goldberg, who's a crime writer, and I said, Todd, help me out, you know, give me a nice long reading list of what do you admire, what's going on. And so he gave me this long list and I went home and I read and read and read all these crime writers. And then I also did my own research. So as you mentioned, I went on a ride along with a sheriff's deputy from the San Bernardino <laughs> County Sheriff's what, what, Department. Tell us about the ride along. <laughs> what was that like? It was a long, it was 12 hours oh. and it was in the heat. And his name was Officer Campos. He was very nice. And we had all kinds of encounters during the day. And of course, I had to remain in my seat and obey all of his directives, but I got to see a lot. I got to see, you know, like arrests and things like that that he had to do that day. But what I came away with, honestly, was how much law enforcement is being used basically as like social work. Like, for example, one time we stopped because the neighbors had called the police because they were worried about this woman who they thought was feeling suicidal because she had lost her daughter. And so they he had to come and basically pick her up and potentially take her for a psychiatric hold. And mm -hmm. so it was like this whole, and you know, that's obviously something that I would imagine a social worker would be involved in, but instead it was the cops being called. I also researched the logistics of a hit and run because I was very naive when I started working on this book. I thought, you know, this guy is going to die in a hit and run. The car comes out hits him, he dies, right? It shouldn't be complicated. But of course, it's complicated because what kind of a car, what kind of a collision would result in a fatality, uh, what clues might be left, uh, you know, yeah, all kinds of things, all kinds of things have to be sorted out. And um, I got really lucky because I was a friend of mine connected me with someone who's a scientist and who basically serves as an expert witness on these sort of hit and run trials. So I basically did a lot of homework is what I'm trying to say in order to write the the mystery. I, I want to ask about your uh, column for The Nation. Yes. You started writing it three years ago. That was before the election when we all thought Hillary would win. And so you would be, you know, a Muslim immigrant columnist at America's Oldest Weekly with a Democratic first woman president of America. 
Uh, and then after November 2016, you had a big new task. You were the immigrant Muslim <laughs> columnist, while Trump was the anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant president. I I doubt that was the job you thought you were going to take on. Well, I mean, I, I certainly, like many other people, thought that Clinton would win. But having said that, I do think that it's not just simply a question of anti-immigrant, but just like immigrant, because I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think that um, Hillary Clinton's approach was a progressive approach on immigration. So if you look, for example, at what made Trump stand out from among his his fellow Republican hopefuls, it was the immigration ban on Muslims, but it was also building the wall, right? So, but the wall didn't the wall was there. It w- wasn't something that started with Trump. It started with Clinton. I mean, Clinton mm-hmm. started building the first wall. It was in San Diego and Tijuana. It was 13 miles of fencing. And the George W. Bush administration expanded that to another 700 miles. And then those those fences and walls were built during the Bush administration and the Obama administration. So what I guess what I'm trying to say is there is a sense of continuity between both Democrats and Republican administrations on immigration. And while his Trump's rhetoric is just hateful and, 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 and repugnant, we have to recognize that continuity. And when we talk about immigration, it's not a question of like, Trump is bad and Clinton is good, but more of like how this immigration policy that has been going on for more than 25 years, how has it helped the country? Has it helped the country? Has it hurt the country? And what exactly are its effects on people? You and I live on the west side of Los Angeles. You live in Santa Monica. <laughs> this is the most you know liberal, democratic, anti-Trump place in America, pretty much. There's only one precinct in all of L.A. County where Trump won. It's in Beverly Hills. But I wonder, you are an immigrant from Morocco. You're an American citizen. You're a Muslim. Do you worry about your safety? Well, I feel duty-bound to remind listeners that Santa Monica, however liberal it may be, produced Stephen Miller, who went to the high school some years ago (laughs) that my child now attends. So, you know, I think, again, this idea that it's everything, like that it's either or, like we really do have to question that. And just yesterday, the Washington Post uh, revealed that Stephen Miller had been counseling the president to, you know, basically stage these highly public, highly visible mass arrests of immigrants and their families and their kids in their homes. And the only reason they haven't done it, because they've been working on it for a year, the only reason it hasn't happened yet is because Kirsten Nielsen said, well, I don't have enough the logistics of it. I don't have enough beds and I don't know what to do with the paperwork because some of them have U.S. citizens. What do I do? And so it was because of that that she was forced out. And as far as like living in Santa Monica, this goes back to what I'm saying. You know, it's yes, I feel safe on a day-to-day basis in my community. But I never let myself feel too safe because I know, based on the example of Stephen Miller, that there is this racist next door, that there is this white nationalist who could be living next door. And I mean, just yesterday when I was on Twitter and I linked to this Washington Post story, all factual, you know, I wasn't even editorializing or saying what I thought. I just said what the headline was basically saying. 
And some rando on Twitter says, do you have your green card? <laughs> to me, I mean, and this is something that happens all the time, like go back to your country and things like that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I never allow myself to kind of forget about that, of that virulently anti-immigration strain that is part and parcel of American history. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's <laughs> news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You just got back from a book festival in Minneapolis. I did. And Minnesota has the highest proportion of immigrants and refugees of any state. I looked up where they're from. Number one source of immigrants to Minnesota is Mexicans. Second, people from India. Third, Somalis like Ilhan Omar. Mm -hmm. Fourth, Hmong from Laos. And lots of them, of course, are refugees. What was your book event in Minneapolis like? Did any of this come up there? Oh, how interesting that you asked me that question, because while I was there, I had to do an interview, and the person who interviewed me is Moroccan. And the first thing she said to me, because it was her first time in Minnesota, she said, I don't understand. Like, this is supposed to be a melting pot. People are supposed to be mixed, but they don't mix. Like, everybody's in their own little, you know, area. But the event was fabulous. It was very well attended. And the conversation was really great. So it was a conversation with Tommy Orange, who did a book called There There. And it was moderated by Joseph Farag. Last question. The idea of the immigrant writer, you know, it's such a generic term. On the other hand, the idea of the immigrant is so central to our politics and our culture today. Do you want to be called an immigrant writer? I want to be called a good writer. <laughs> yes. That's what I want to be called. And if you want to add anything else beyond that, as long as you put good in there, <laughs> then that's what matters to me. Layla Lalami, her wonderful new novel is The Other Americans. Layla, thanks so much for Thank talking. Thank you very to us much today. for having me. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Prime Video's culture-rated collection. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis' The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby. Or add to the experience by buying
buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. We're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.